Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And there was the name, A Clockwork Orange. And I said, that's a fair gloopy title. Who ever heard of A Clockwork Orange? When you start to read it, the first chapter, you're actually quite adrift. But by about, like, chapter three, if you just go with it, you suddenly find yourself kind of clicking into this world in this way of talking. He would often work quite late at night, and he used manual typewriters, which were quite loud, and he said the neighbours would bang on the wall to complain. So there was so much activity going on, not just in this house, but in this room where we're now standing. It was actually orange. The whole attic was painted. Oh, that's orange. right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, it was really <laughs> odd. What's it going to be then, eh? That's the opening line of A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, his notorious dystopian satirical novel that uses wildly experimental language to describe rape, ultraviolence, brainwashing, Augustinian theology, and a love of classical music. It's a novel of contrasts. As Martin Amis said, the opening chapters still deliver the shock of the new. They form a red streak of gleeful evil. But William S. Burroughs observed that it is also a very funny book. Alex, the novel's unforgettable narrator, is brutally violent. He is a rapist and a murderer, and he is only 15 years old. As well as a highly controversial film adaptation by Stanley Kubrick, A Clockwork Orange has inspired the names of bands such as Heaven 17, Maloko, The Devochkas, and Kampag Veloset. In fact, its influence on the culture is everywhere. The Rolling Stones wrote their album sleeve notes in the same NADSAT language that Alex uses. Blur dressed up as droogs for the video of their song The Universal. Danny Boyle referenced the Karova milk bar in the nightclub scene in Trainspotting. And in 2002, Kylie Minogue put on a white jumpsuit, black bowler hat and false eyelash during the stadium tour of her album Fever. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and today I'm going to dress in the height of fashion, oh my brothers, in a waisty jacket and off-white cravat, and itty out into the streets of East Sussex to slushy the music, have some 20 to 1, and discuss old Burgess, or F. Alexander, or whatever his naz is or was. 
But first, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce the two guests for today's episode, Jeff Noon and Andrew Biswell. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Hello, Henry. Looking uh, resplendent in your bowler hat. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, Jeff Noon is an award-winning novelist, short story writer and playwright. The author of 14 novels, including the cult classic Vert, which won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1994 and celebrates its 30th anniversary this year. And in fact, there's a fantastic 30th anniversary edition coming out with Angry Robot Books this year. Professor Andrew Biswell teaches at Manchester Metropolitan University and is the director of the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 2005, he published the prize-winning biography, The Real Life of Anthony Burgess, and in 2012, he edited the restored edition of A Clockwork Orange. So I can't think of two better people to be here today talking about Anthony Burgess and A Clockwork Orange. Jeff, like... Burgess, you were born in Manchester. Yeah. How has that city influenced your writing? Well, totally and utterly, in the sense that most of my early part, my most of my early books were set there and very much set there. And I, I when I first started writing Burt, you know, one of my intentions was to give a voice to the city that I thought hadn't been given before, a younger voice, more exciting voice, you know. So I was really into bringing the city in as a character in, in a good number of novels and exploring its various secret passageways and hidden mythologies and so on. So, yeah, definitely a big, big part of what I was trying to do. Invert especially, it's, it's so set in that city and yeah. it's so exciting seeing the stash riders yeah. exploring the city and racing down these different streets. And, Andrew, you live and work in Manchester now. Did that city have a lasting impact on Burgess as well? Yeah, I think he did, and he went back a lot, uh, especially towards the end of his life. He didn't recognise it because it, it changed so much. I mean, it's always been a, a place in flux. I mean, going right back to, you know, when it was the sort of heart of the Industrial Revolution. So as he represents it, it's a, a place of change, people coming and going. He moved around a lot. I, I mean, it's a city of migrants, but the Burgess family were also... He was born in North Manchester, then he moved to Miles Platting, uh, also in the north of the city, and then to Moss Side and Russia and where he went to school. So it's a place where there's always a lot of mobility and his family was, was part of that, partly you know, for reasons, you know, his mother died when he was very young and he was sent to live with his aunt, but he was excited about the city and it is a very dynamic place. And you have a tantalising moment in your biography where you mentioned that when Burgess recorded some passages of A Clockwork Orange for an LP in the 70s, the accent he uses for the narrator, Alex, he reverts to the Mancunian accent of his childhood. And so maybe that's the voice we should be hearing Alex speaking in, in The Clockwork yeah, Orange. Yeah, it's true. He recorded some passages from A Clockwork Orange. And, of course, he'd grown up uh, as a Lancashire speaker. I mean, his grandfather was, was a dialect speaker. And his father, you know, less so because he'd been in the army and he'd been away and, and he'd lived abroad. But, um, you know, Burgess, when he was growing up, he was like D.H. Lawrence, you know, he, he was a dialect speaker. And that was sort of drummed out of him when he was at school. And then he got this job in the colonial service in Malaya. But when he came to record the book, he does go back to, to his Manchester accent. Uh, and his own accent moves around through his life. The earliest recordings of his voice, he, he's terribly, terribly posh. And then in the 80s and 90s, he, he kind of, when he's talking, he, he sounds more mank. But... That's a good point. When he hears the voice of Alex when he's performing it, it, it's a Manchester voice. How fascinating. Well, 
Burgess left Manchester to fight him a Second World War, and he never lived there again after that. And, and Jeff, like Burgess, you and he both moved from Manchester and came to live in Hove in Sussex on the south coast of England. And this is where Burgess began to write the novel A Clockwork Orange. Now, that novel opens in a very famous setting, the Corova Milk Bar. We're not in the Corova Milk Bar right now, but we're in a delightful, sunny cafe uh, in the centre of Hope right now. Um, Jeff, what kind of bar is the Corova Milk Bar, and who do we meet there oh, at the start it, of the novel? There's a lot of young people there, I think. There's a mixture of people, and I think that we are introduced almost straight away to the voice of Alex, our narrator, our main character, and his gang. And I think they seem to own the Corova, I think, in many ways, or think that they do, especially Alex. I think he thinks he's the king of everything, you know, everything he can see, he wants to be the king of. And um, it's filled with the language that these boys are speaking, you know, and that's the first one we get in the book. It's the most important part of the book. For so many people, it's its most lasting influence. Is absolutely, how they speak. absolutely, which we will certainly be yeah. discussing. So, Andrew, who is this gang that we meet in the mill bar? Well, Alex and his three droogs, they are, in the language of the time, they're juvenile delinquents, they're JDs. Um, they're 15 years old, uh, they don't go to school very much, but they go out after night causing trouble and, and having fun. It's obvious from the account Alex gives of it that, that he's having a great time. They're robbing shops and people and fighting other gangs. Uh, so they're sort of dropouts in a way, um, but it's also clear that Alex is very intelligent, as we can see from his narrative and this special language, the, the language of the gang that, that they've cooked up between them, which is important, this kind of slang based on Russian, secret language. And he's also interested in music, mm. um, but not, not what you'd expect. I mean books written in the late 50s early 60s but it's not you know elvis or cliff richard it's, well, he has uh, a term for that he calls them fuzzy warbles isn't it pop music <laughs> that's which is right. a great term i love that fuzzy warbles but he, <laughs> that's great alex is into a very different kind of music yes mm. absolutely yeah. well so we're introduced to alex and his his droogs pete georgie and dim and in the milk bar they're drinking milk but milk that's been um spiked with various forms of narcotics and so the droogs in Corova Milk Bar, they tank up on this milk, it, it says um, you could peat milk with knives in it as we used to say, they get all ready for some violence and then they head out in their extraordinary costumes, their very tight tights their cravats, their dandified waistcoats and so on they head out into the streets for some violence so let's do the same Let's uh, head out of uh, this cafe and see what we can find on the streets outside. What they sold there was milk plus something else. They had no licence for selling liquor, but there was no law yet against prodding some of the new veskies which they used to put into the old Maloco, so you could peat it with Veloset or Synthmesk or Drencrom or one or two other veshies, which would give you a nice quiet horror show 15 minutes admiring Bog and all his holy angels and saints in your left shoe with lights bursting all over your mosque. Let's see if we can find the number. It's just over here. This end. 
Okay, well, we've just walked a little way uh, through Hove, and we've turned onto Tisbury Road, uh, which runs down to the seafront. In fact, I can see the sea at the end of this street and the horizon beyond that. And we're standing outside number 78, and it was here that Burgess and his wife, Lynn, Burgess was aged 42, they rented a one-bedroomed furnished flat on the ground floor here between 1959 and 1960. So we can imagine them walking through that door and sitting on the other side of that window. This is a street of uh, terraced houses, rather grand-looking, really, with these um, big glass fan lights above the door and about three stories to the houses. But it sounds like the flat that they lived in was rather tatty and old. He describes um, it being just covered in the landlady's knickknacks everywhere. And uh, the carpets had holes in them. There were winds blowing under the doors, he said later. Now, Andrew, when Burgess moved here at the age of 42, he'd recently returned from Malaya, where he'd been a schoolteacher. He'd written three novels already, which are now known as the Malayan Trilogy. But between October 1959 and August 1961, he wrote six novels. It's extraordinarily prolific. Why was he so extraordinarily productive in that period? I think Burgess had been thinking for a long time about what novels he wanted to write, novels about the future, comic novels about the state of England. And he'd been working for years and years as a schoolteacher, and like many teachers, he, he was a bit kind of thwarted uh, creatively. And I think when he went freelance finally and became a professional writer, it was like, you know, the gates opening on a, you know, a sort of dam, this great flood of, of words poured out. Um, so it, it's very interesting to be standing outside one of the places where this happened. We also know what was in the fridge because he writes about that. Pickled onions and beetroot is what sustained this great frenzy of writing. And appropriately, we're standing here. There's, there's broken glass on the pavement, which is very clockwork orange. Yes. And there's a box of pills um, that somebody's left here. So you, you feel that despite, you know, it's a long time since Burgess lived here, but maybe the, uh, the, the spirit of the place survives. And he tells a story, doesn't he, that in 1959, he was, he was diagnosed with a brain tumour, right? Burgess had this myth about why he'd become a professional writer and, and he said there was this neurological diagnosis. Now, that doesn't stack up against the evidence that we have. In fact, there's a letter that's sent to this address, number 78 Tisbury Road, by his specialist, which says to him, you don't have a brain tumour. So he had to leave his job in Brunei. He was, he was very unwell with something. He'd collapsed in the classroom and was uh, you know, airlifted back to London. Um, and he was sacked from his job. So he found himself in these strange circumstances. He wasn't quite sure what was going on. He was having all these neurological tests. But the one thing he knew was that he wanted, before he died, because he thought he might be going to die, to, to get a lot of writing done. Uh, as he said, to provide for his prospective widow, give her some sort of a pension. <laughs> and so that was the, the myth that he then kind of propagated afterwards. And your work was cut out for you in writing a biography of Burgess, because it seems like every time he told a story, he told it slightly differently and for a different audience. Yeah, every time. He, he liked the shape of a story, which I think was more important to him than, you know, the, the boring detail of what actually happened. <laughs> what actually happened. And, you know, if you read his autobiography, which is a great pair of books, um, there's a sense that, you know, he is a compulsive novelist. He can't turn it off. But I, I think a lot of writers have these, these kind of origin stories about how they got going. 
uh, and it, it's it's kind of expected to some extent it, it makes good copy if you're being interviewed but also I mean a, there's a lot of truth there he was very unwell mm. and he would had to give up school teaching and he was worried about the future and I mean he always talked about death from about the age of I don't know 35 onwards he was convinced that he was about to die <laughs> so he he had this extraordinary outpouring of of novels and one of the things that inspired him it seems was returning to Britain after time away and seeing the country having changed seeing the kind of youth culture emerging a, a falling away of religious belief and some of that goes into A Clockwork Orange which is one of the novels that that started life here behind these lace curtains that we're looking at now. Jeff, how would you describe the, the setting of A Clockwork Orange? In some ways, it's set nowhere and everywhere, isn't it? Well, I think one of the things you have to talk about with Clockwork Orange is, is it a science fiction novel or not? Mm. Because it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? It's like, it, it seems to be set in a very real Britain of the time. But he's introduced these elements, a few key elements that just raise it above that reality. Uh, I find that fascinating. It's what I was trying to do with Vert in many ways. You know, it's right. one, it's an approach to science fiction. It isn't about total fantasy. It's about taking the here and now, introducing something strange and weird, and then just following that through and seeing how that changes society. He does that brilliantly in the language, the use of the drugs, youth culture. You know, all that. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating aspect it of the It really work. is. And as you say, there's just these little touches, like the fact that there's a moment where everyone in, in the country seems to be in the world is watching what they call a world cast. There's <laughs> simultaneous kind of broadcast going into everyone's room at once. And yeah. you think, actually, that feels quite realistic now. Yeah, but some at the of the time, stuff, I mean, some of the, some of the things that he invents seem quite realistic. But, I mean, he's, he's free to do what he wants with it, you yes. know? Yes. And because it's so grounded in reality... When he spikes up into that hyper-reality, it's beautiful to read, you know, and it's great because you don't get the whole fantasy thing. It's like, yeah, this is, this is life, but it's like weird life, you yes. know. Yes. I think he once said that um, the, the location of a Clockwork Orange could be anywhere, but that he visualised it as a sort of compound of my native Manchester, Leningrad and New York. <laughs> and there is a sort of Soviet <laughs> fantasy element to it, isn't there? You know, Alex lives... You know, he doesn't live in a terraced flat like this one. He lives in a in municipal flat block 18A with his dada and his mum. And, and the hallway is covered in these huge kind of Soviet murals of um, naked workers kind of working in the factories. It's slightly dystopian and slightly mm. kind of tainted utopia you know it's gone as utopian vision that's gone wrong and this is the reality of what people are actually living in the mules are cracked you know the lifts aren't working <laughs> yes yes but the impulse behind it is quite utopian in a way yeah absolutely you know? well let's head on walking into hove and carry on talking about a clockwork orange There was no real need from the point of view of cresting any more pretty Polly to toll-chock some old vec in an alley and viddy him swim in his blood while we counted the takings and divided by four, nor to do the ultraviolent on some shivering, starry, grey-haired petitza in a shop and go smecking off with the till's guts. But, as they say, money isn't everything. Well, we've just stopped outside Hove Town Hall, which is a large, brutalist concrete building full of glass and reminds me a little bit of some of the settings in uh, the Kubrick adaptation of Clockwork Orange. But 
I think A Clockwork Orange is, is perhaps most famous for its descriptions of ultra-violence in the first of its three sections. We get lots of examples of it. We see Alex and his droogs beating up first an, an aging academic on the side of the road. They, they go into a shop and beat up a shopkeeper. It says, a fair tap with a crowbar they had for opening cases brought the red out like an old friend. And most dramatically is, is the kind of balletic gang fight with their enemies, Billy Boy and his five droogs, which they have round by the municipal power plant. Alex says, this would be proper. This would be the nosh, the Uzi, the Britvar, not just fisties and boots. Now, Burgess once said that he was sickened by his own excitement at setting this violence down. He said, I saw that Auden was right in saying that the novelist must be filthy with the filthy. And Jeff, I wondered, does that ring true to you as a, <laughs> as a writer? You know, that, that's from that poem, yeah. Novelist, where Auden yeah. says, be among the filthy, filthy yeah. too. I think this is a very difficult subject. <laughs> and I think that that statement is absolutely correct. Of course, it's got to be metaphorical. But I can understand Burgess's mix of excitement and disgust at his own creation. Um, this is probably the most difficult part of the book for, for many people. Um, I think that he's desperately trying to be true to a kind of vision of humanity as he sees it, that, that we're not all good, that there is this terrible dark side to us, especially amongst young men. And we think he's desperately trying to express that in a new way, something that when he came back to, to England, he saw the difference in the young people. Yeah. And he, he really wanted to find a way of expressing that, to talk about it, to talk about it truthfully without kind of holding back from it. Um, there is one aspect of the book that does hold back, which is the language itself slightly softens the approach. Mm. If it didn't have this made-up language, it would be a really di quite a difficult book to read, I would think. Yeah, I think you're right. And just before we get on to talk about that language, Andrew, Burgess also described the violence in this book as being both an act of catharsis and an act of charity. What was the traumatic event that in part inspired the violence in this book? Well, I, I think, as Jeff has said, that violence is a very complex question, especially in A Clockwork Orange. Partly, I think the 50s and 60s were a very violent time generally. You've got the Teddy Boys. We're here in Brighton and Hove. The Brighton Beach, you know, the mods and rockers having yeah. their, their fights. You know, we can see the beach from here. So not very far away from where the book was begun. Now, in Burgess's own biography, uh, his first wife had been attacked uh, during the war, during the blackout in London in 1944. And it, it's not much like the attack in the book in that it was a, a robbery there were some deserting GIs who'd set upon her in the blackout and she sustained some very traumatic injuries, she was pregnant at the time and, and she lost the child and quite a long time after that Burgess has in a clockwork orange the droogs they, they break into the house of a writer and his wife is sexually assaulted and he's very badly beaten up and they're treated like sort of objects and things so I mean you could if you wanted to see that as the working out of a very personal business but I'd also want to say that Burdis himself didn't know very much about violence other than having been a school teacher 
and schools as we know young people can be in a very casual way especially boys sort of violent to each other so I think the novel draws on that and a whole lot of other things that were in the air around the time he was writing it absolutely and yes, you, you mentioned that attack on, on the writer and his wife in the writer's home. Jeff, that's one of the most notorious scenes in, in the novel, isn't it? Yeah. Alex calls it the old surprise visit, and they, they trick their way into getting into the house, and they're wearing these, these masks, and yes, they attack the husband and, and, and rape the wife. And of course, the author is writing, they see a manuscript on the table and he's writing a book called A Clockwork Orange, isn't he? Well, this is bizarre to me. I don't know how many writers would actually put themselves into a book with their wife, have themselves beaten up and their wife raped. I mean, it's just, why would you do that? What is his impulse? I mean, that's one of the things that when I read the book recently, I had to ask myself that question. What is his personal impulse as a writer to do that? It's an extreme thing to do. And, you know, obviously, hidden away in his mind is the reason why he did it. We will never know. Um, yeah, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult book. There's no getting away from it. it um, you have to be quite strong to read it, I think. Yeah. He's asking a lot of the reader in terms of what they can put up with in a novel, you know. Absolutely. You know? But, but as you say, one of, the, one of the ways in which he does protect the reader, I think, to some extent, is through the language that the book is written. And as well as the violence, I think this is the aspect for which the novel is perhaps most famous. It's linguistic virtuosity. Andrew, what is this NADSAT vocabulary that Alex and his droogs speak in? NADSAT is a, it's an invented language based on Russian, but it's got a lot of other elements in it. There's a lot of Cockney rhyming slang in there. There's a lot of uh, World War II slang, actually. Uh, there's prison slang. Uh, there are bits of Romany so it's something that's been cobbled together by Burgess for the book but it's, it's, a, it's a group language which they share and it's a way of keeping other people out now from the reader's point of view some editions of the book have a glossary and others don't Burgess didn't want a glossary in the novel and there wasn't one in the first edition in the hardback and then when the paperback came out in 1972 Penguin sort of snuck one in Uh, which he found out about some years later and was quite annoyed about and he had it removed again. Uh, There is a glossary in the current edition uh, and again there was some debate between the editor of the book, which is me, and the publisher and I'm afraid to say I lost. So uh, (laughs) Burgess would have hated this but the glossary is now back. And uh, Jeff and I were talking just now. When I first read it, my copy didn't have a glossary so you, you just had to sink or swim with the language. But other editions of the book do have a glossary and we were wondering Jeff maybe you, you yeah, yeah. have views uh, well, on this I mean I think for me I mean the, the greatest part of this book without doubt is its language um, and I think it's one of those books he takes no prisoners Burgess with this book when you start to read it the first chapter you're actually quite adrift what on earth is going on you know what are, what's going on And but by about like chapter 3 if you just go with it you suddenly find yourself kind of clicking into this world yeah. in this way of talking. And then it just flows, and it flows really, really well. And you're no longer too bothered about exactly what the, what the lads are saying and what it means, you know. And my edition did have the glossary in, so occasionally I would look a word up when I needed to know precisely what it meant. But mostly I just forgot about it and just went with the flow. And I really enjoyed that. I think for me, I mean, the story is that he wrote it in three weeks. Maybe it was a bit longer than that. It reads 
like he's written it quickly. I don't mean that in a bad way, like this is an unfinished draft or something. It reads like he's got an impulse and he needs to get it down and he gets it down and that's it. And, he, and he's going with his own flow. And I think that if you read it in the same spirit as he wrote it, without thinking too much about what it all means, I think you'll have a really good time with it. I completely recognise that description of, of kind of being a bit bewildered, but then gradually you kind of adjust to the, to the language. <laughs> and it's interesting because... As we'll see, this, this book is about lots of things, but it's partly about brainwashing and, and the control of the brain. And Anthony Burgess described his language as, he says, the text itself was a brainwashing device. The reader would be brainwashed into learning minimal Russian. So just the act of reading this book is kind of adjusting your brain in a way. As you, when as you, when you write a science fiction novel, you've got to do two things. You've got to just do the normal stuff a writer does, which is plot, character, etc. But you've also got to teach the reader about right. the world that's new. And there are two ways to do that. It's what's called the info dump or marbling. Info dump is where you just basically tell them straight off, like the beginning of Star Wars. With right. the, yes, with the banner. Right. Marbling is where you just gradually, now and then, give away clues and facts about the world. Usually just as the main character experiences him. And that's what he does in this, and he does it really, really well. So that as Alex goes on his journey, you learn about the world almost like he's learning about it, and it's really well done. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. and if I may say so, you do it extremely well in Vert as well. You know, that is a whole parallel world which we learn about over yeah. the course of the book. And let's carry on walking through Hove. Andrew, the fir very first sentence of your uh, biography is that John Burgess Wilson was born in Manchester just after the pubs had opened. Well, the pubs are about to open here, and we're off to the pub now to, uh, to meet another guest for today's episode. Oh, it was gorgeousness and gorgeosity made flesh. The trombones crunched red gold under my bed, and behind my gulliver, the trumpets three wise silver flamed, and there by the door the timps rolling through my guts and out again crunched like candy thunder. Oh, it was wonder of wonders. So we're just approaching a pub called the Neptune with a wonderful carved figure of the sea god lying above the, the name of the pub. And this is a pub that's named in, inside Mr. Enderby, a slightly later novel that uh, Burgess wrote. Enderby comes here and says, uh, the saloon bar of the Neptune was already half filled with old people, mainly widows. It's a sort of pub in which any of the three parts, saloon, public, outdoor, is visible from any other. So let's head on in and uh, see what it's like inside. So we've just stepped inside the Neptune pub now, and it's a beautiful, uh, cosy room covered with photographs of, the, of musicians and singers, and this, this pub is now famous for its live music gigs. And I'm delighted that we've, we've met here at the pub local writer and counsellor Christopher Hawtrey. Christopher, welcome. Former councillor, recovering councillor. <laughs> I like it. Now, 
Christopher, you knew Burgess, didn't you? In 1987, for his 70th birthday, you conducted an interview with him for the Illustrated London News. What are your memories of meeting him? Yes, I think Anthony Burgess, he was a bit like Enderby. He was a character. He created a persona, I think, with the corduroy jacket, the trousers. He played up to this image that he had. You see it on all the interviews with Jeremy Isaacs and people like that on television if they're around. He... um, he, he was a, a performer, very much, mm. I think, but a, a genuinely nice man, I thought, and it just you could immediately start talking with him readily as if he was sitting here in the Neptune. How wonderful. He does sound like a natural raconteur who could just strike up with anybody. But you, I think, were instrumental in setting up a, a mural here in Hove to commemorate the fact that Inside Mr Enderby takes place here. Yes, that was about a decade ago, where you were off George Street. There's a, it's a bit wider than what's known as a Twitten in Sussex, an alleyway. And we had a mural. There was funding from Europe for it to paint local scenes, including the other place, Brighton, with Richard Attenborough and Green's novel. And, and I was involved going up a ladder, painting some of the background to cover the wall. And they wanted a quotation on it. You can still see it, the one from inside Mr Enderby when he's walking along the front down here about the seagull noise, the ghosts. It's lovely. And unfortunately, vandals have got at it, so it's all been obliterated except for the quotation from inside Mr Enderby. So Burgess's spirit's still here in part. Lingering on. (laughs) Wonderful. It's worth saying, isn't it, while we're we're in the pub, perhaps, that um, Burgess drank heavily and, and... Lynn, his wife, when she'd had her attack during the war, the doctors had prescribed pints of Guinness to get the iron back into her, and this was the start of a downward alcoholic spiral for her. And they they seemed to match each other's drinking, didn't they? You have really extraordinary figures in your biography, Andrew, of of the amount of gin and beer which they had delivered into their household each week. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, about dozen bottles of gin every week um, to the house but that wasn't the extent of it not fully because they they would go out they they loved pubs and Lynn in the war had uh, been a sort of drinking buddy of Dylan Thomas in Fitzrovia in London and she was part of that scene but I think I think Burgess as well I mean they he'd grown up in pubs and they both liked pubs and they liked drinking a lot uh, and in most of the houses where they lived they, they would also have a bar in the attic or in the front room um, so it's as if they're, they're not just going out for pubs, they want to bring the pub into their houses as well. Well, it's appropriate we're in a pub that's known for its music because in a later essay called Clockwork Marmalade, Burgess says that Alex, his narrator, is an exemplar of humanity. He is aggressive, he loves beauty, he is a language user. Now, we've already discussed his violence and the dialect he uses, but how does Alex's love of music affect the way we view him do you think Jeff? He does something very interesting in the novel which is that he takes classical music which is often viewed perhaps rightly as the like the an outpouring of the the human spirit at its most beautiful and grand and fantastic you know Uh, but he gives it it gives the love of that music to this basically who's a thug who enjoys ultraviolence so He's playing an interesting little game there where we might expect Alex to enjoy a more kind of violent, like rock kind of music, but he doesn't. He loves Beethoven. He loves Benji Britt, as he calls him, people (laughs) like that. It's quite interesting. 
Burgess is really playing against the type there. But in the book, it very much represents that other side of Alex. So when we come to that bit, we're quite surprised because up to then, he's been quite violent. Suddenly, he's in his room. And the way that he describes music is so beautiful. The way he describes Beethoven's symphony, you know, it's amazing. To it's fabulous. To. And there's that moment, do you remember in the, in the milk bar where a lady starts singing impromptu? And he says, it was like for a moment, oh, my brothers, some great bird had flown into the milk bar and I felt all the little malenki hairs on my plot standing endwise. And I think it was Martin Amos who said that this decision to give him a love of classical music at a stroke and without sentimentality realigns Alex. He has now been equipped with a soul. And I think it does change the way we think about him. Do do you agree, Andrew? I think music is very important to Burgess all the way through, especially in the clockwork range, but not just there. And, of course, I mean, here we are in the pub. He'd grown up in a pub from the age of five, um, as I understand it, playing the piano to entertain the customers. Right. So that sort of culture of intoxication and also live music, music you, you made yourself, especially these pubs, North Manchester, very rowdy places on Friday and Saturday nights. There'd be three pianos going, three singing rooms and, and everyone <laughs> joining in. So, I mean, that's the world of um, his father, also played piano in pubs, and his novel, The Piano Players. Now, it is unusual, I suppose, that Alex, in A Clockwork Orange, he's interested in classical music, not just Beethoven, but also Mendelssohn, he mentions, uh, I think, Schubert and, and Benjamin Breton. These big orchestral symphonic composers. Yeah, but also, as he grows up, he comes to prefer leader. He says, just like a, a voice and a piano. And that reflects Burdis's musical upbringing. He would go with his father to the, the Halle Orchestra at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester every Thursday. They had a, a season ticket and they'd listen to Wagner or Constant Lambert or you know, a, a mixture of, of old and new music, but orchestral music. And that was what, as a, in his other life as a composer, he was most interested in writing, um, that sort of thing. Stravinsky is another big influence on, on his own musical writing. Fascinating. And there's... There's also another aspect to it, isn't there, where there's a moment in the novel where Alex says that he'd once seen one of these, like, articles on modern youth. Great music, it said, and great poetry would, like, quieten modern youth down and make modern youth more civilised. Civilised my civilised yarbles. Music always sort of sharpened me up, oh, my brothers. And there's a sense in which, yes, this gives him a soul, this gives him a kind of softer side, but actually this music is one of the things that fuels him, fuels the violence. And Martin Amos says, Burgess is airing the sinister but not implausible suggestion that Beethoven and Birkenau didn't merely coexist, that there's a relationship between the two. And that gives it a, a more sinister edge, I think. Right, and there's no doubt that music is a, is a stimulant to ultraviolence in the novel. I mean, also the context of this is that Burgess wrote A Clockwork Orange in 1961, just after the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem. And I, I think, again, this is very much something that, that's in the air. How could the Nazis, who, who had this big investment in, as it were, high culture, also commit these kind of barbaric acts in the, the, the death camps. And I think that the novel's very interesting. In many ways, it's quite frightened of, of culture and the, some of the places that it can take people. Mm. Well, it's indirectly this love of music that, that leads to Alex's downfall at the end of the first part of this novel. Because when this lady in the milk bar starts singing and he has this wonderful reaction, 
and loves the sound of it. Dim, his uh, dim-witted droog, blows a raspberry and kind of makes fun of her. And his instant impulse is to punch him in the face and then kind of tell him off for ruining the moment. And this is a turning point for the group of droogs, isn't it, Jeff? Um, it's a moment where they're like, well, hold on a second. Who appointed you our leader? Who gets to decide what we do? Yeah, we're into that world of young men and who's going to be the king and the boss, you know. And the, 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 the power shift, the power. Who's going to have the power now? You're, I, you, I don't like you anymore. I should be the boss, you know. It's absolute classic territory, this. And he does it so well. Um, I also think that that punch is almost like... Oh, it's like the punch in Billy Budd, isn't it? It's just that, pow! You know? Yeah. How dare you? He's not even thinking anymore. It's almost like Dim has made fun of the one most beautiful thing in this terrible life, you know? And he just reaches out and it, you know, it starts, the end of his, his youth starts to begin at that point. Yeah. Well, it's the moment where the other droogs decide to gang up on him. They end up tricking him into another of these surprise visits, a little old lady with a house full of cats, and they betray him. They hand him over to the police, and that is how the first part ends. Now, in a moment, we're going to get in the car and head out of Hove. But, Christopher, as a Hove resident and a great fan of Burgess, someone who knew Burgess, in what ways do you feel his presence lingers here? And, and do you think Hove had an effect on him as a writer? He wasn't here very long. I think it was a matter of a few months when he certainly began, if not completed, several novels. And at the end of the first volume of the memoirs and the beginning of the second, he's rather scathing about the place. It's rather changed now. It's um, one of the most expensive places to be. Um, So he and I were pioneering something in different eras. But... When you walk around, there's so many buildings that survive. Some, the old town hall burnt down in 1966, so it's a rather not-so-beautiful replacement. So it's, the buildings have changed, but there's a lot of buildings which survive that he would have walked past, and I often think of him looking up at... There's quite a lot of buildings with small towers amongst them as he walks down from Tisbury Road, as I did earlier today, and along the seafront here to come here to the Neptune. Um, so in this pub, you mentioned his name, and people know about it appearing in his novel, so... Um, He's known. Fantastic. Well, Christopher, it's been such a pleasure to meet you and hear your first-hand memories of, of Anthony Burgess himself. Thank you so much for making the time to meet Not us. Not at all. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So here I was now, two years just to the day of being kicked and clanged into Stadger 84F, dressed in the height of prison fashion, which was a one-piece suit of a very filthy light cow colour and the number sewn on the groody part just above the old TikToker and on the back as well, so that going and coming, I was 6655321 and not your little droog Alex, not no longer. Well, we've driven a little way outside of Hove now to the town of Lewis and in the novel A Clockwork Orange when Alex is arrested by the police it's discovered that the the old lady with the cats that he attacked has in fact died he says uh, that was everything I'd done the lot now with murder and he's sentenced to 14 years in Stadger or State Jail number 84F and so we've stopped um not outside a Stadger 84F, but outside His Majesty's prison, Lewis. We're looking up at these big flinty walls topped with barbed wire, and just over the top of that we can see the, the main body of the building. And we've stopped here to discuss the second part of the novel, which Alex spends in prison. The, the governor of the prison says to Alex at one point, an eye for an eye, I say. If someone hits you, you hit back, do you not? Why then should not the state, very severely hit by you brutal hooligans, not hit back also? And in a way, in the novel, that kind of eye for an eye ethics is, is seen as kind of natural and healthy. There's a much more sinister punishment which comes to Alex in the form of this new treatment called the Ludovico technique. And Jeff, what does that involve? Well, he's strapped into a chair and his, eye, his eyes are forced open and he's forced to watch very, very violent imagery. Mm-hmm. Extremely violent. And it's an idea is basically by forcing himself to watch this, it will in some way purge his mind of the impulse to do it. It will, it will disgust him with the worst kind of human behaviour possible in an attempt to... Um, make him a, a better man, a better person. That's it. They inject him with a kind of serum, which, sort of, as he's watching these images, and makes him feel absolutely awful. And yes, he starts to have this sort of Pavlovian reaction to the, to the images. But these doctors have not only put together this awful montage of, of violence... As an emotional heightener, they've backed it with music, with right? With his beloved Beethoven and, and all that, which is just makes it even worse for him because he loves it so much. And now Beethoven, from now on, will be associated with ultraviolence. And it's that moment when he realises that it's the music he loves behind it, that's the moment where he really kind of fights back and says, it's a sin, that's what it is, a, a filthy, unforgivable sin, you brachnies. But, Andrew, this brings us on to really the central 
ethical argument of of a clockwork orange of you know what it means to be good and and the prison chaplain is one of the mouthpieces for this isn't he it's the prison chaplain who talks about free will in the novel and he's got this line he says when a man cannot choose he ceases to be a man which is it's a very important section and it sums up a lot of Burgess's own thinking about free will and he, he didn't believe in rehabilitating criminals and other antisocial people. This was something that was in the air a lot at the time he was writing the novel. For example, they were talking about curing people of their antisocial behaviour, even their alcoholism, even changing their sexuality using these Pavlovian techniques of aversion therapy. So uh, this is the, the kind of ethical impulse that stands behind the novel is Burgess wanting to build a case for uh, people being allowed to choose evil if they like, Ideally, they'd choose good. But he said, if you take the choice away, then what you've got are sort of lobotomized robots. You haven't got human beings anymore. The other important aspect of the prison is how brutal and, and violent it is, isn't it? But he has descriptions of the orderlies. The, the brutal chassos were on the job right away, hitting out nasty and delivering toll shocks left and right. And Burgess has said elsewhere that Although violence has traditionally been the preserve of the private sector of society and condemned as a criminal act, in our century, the state has seen the advantages of using it. But in some ways, the, the novel is a, is a polemic against state violence, isn't it? Yeah, I think this is the big argument of the, the second half of the novel, is that the, the violence that's done to Alex by the authorities, by the government and by the people in the prison and in the Ludovico Institute is... In a sense, it's worse than anything that he's done because they are trying to take away his free will and, and brainwash him into being someone else. And that's the big uh, argument. Um, I mean, Jeff, what do you think of this as, as a piece of sort of science fiction writing when we get to the prison and the conditioning and so on? Personally, when I read it now, I read it when I read it was, as a young man, it's very different. If you read it at my age, it's very, very different because you just don't like Alex as much as I did <laughs> when I was younger, do you know what I mean? I remember when the film came out, and I was like a young teen at the time, so I couldn't go to see it, but everyone was talking about it, and we were really excited about it, in the same way that we were excited about skinheads or Hell's Angels or Bobber Boys, even though we didn't want to be one, and we didn't want to be beaten up by one. They held this kind of romance for us, you know, and I think that's it, but when I read it now, I was actually quite shocked by it, to be honest, and... Um, I mean, well, you know, we have to talk about well, what the, the free will of the victims of his victim. You know, where is that? Right. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated question. You know. Well, let's get back in the car and carry on driving. And, and we've touched a little bit on Kubrick's adaptation. Let's carry on talking about it as we drive on. So one of the things about A Clockwork Orange is that it's had this extraordinary film adaptation by Stanley Kubrick which is almost as famous and notorious as the novel itself but in fact there was, there was an adaptation before that, in 1965 Andy Warhol filmed a film called Vinyl with some names changed but it's very much an adaptation of uh, Clockwork Orange taken in four takes and in quite a sort of amateur way and then in 1969 I believe uh, Anthony Burgess himself wrote a screenplay for his own unfilmed adaptation. And then it was in 1971 that Stanley Kubrick's adaptation came out. And 
Andrew, why did that film cause such a scandal when it came out? I think the scandal of Kubrick's Clockwork Orange was to do with the context and the time. There were quite a number of controversial films around. For example, Ken Russell's The Devils, which had been cut before that was given a certificate. It was also a very turbulent time more generally, especially in Britain, where there was the miners' strike and there was the Bloody Sunday uh, in Northern Ireland and uh, the three-day week. So the, the film comes out at a time when there's all sorts of political and social unrest going on. And the government of the day, which was Edward Heath's government, was feeling very threatened. And in that context, people attached a lot of their anxieties about violence and about disorder to this film. Um, more the Kubrick film than the Burgess novel, actually. Mm-hmm. So the Home Secretary of the day, Reginald Maudling, demanded a private screening of the film because he was very uncertain that it should have been given a certificate. Um, and he saw it and then the scandal kind of died down a bit. But right from the start, and not just in this country, um, I think it was to do with the presentation of violence and, and nudity and sex in the film which got it banned, for example, in Spain and in Brazil and South Africa. So people were very uncertain about it, um, and it is a very uncompromising piece of filmmaking in many ways. And I think also that people were very worried about copycat crimes, and I think it was uh, Kubrick himself, I think, who, who asked for the film to be removed from circulation because of that, especially in Britain. Um, and I think that that was part and parcel of the the mystique of the film that's, that's, you know, gathered over the years since then. Right. I was given a VHS copy of it surreptitiously one day. So here's that film you're asking about. And I lent it to someone and I never got it back. So it was being circulated in a certain way. Interesting. As a kind of, you know, sacred object. And it's worth saying that in, in, in various ways it's quite different to Burgess's novel. I mean, Burgess himself described it as a radical remaking of his own novel. And, Andrew, in what significant ways is it different to the book? I think one of the things that Kubrick does to the film, well, first of all, he takes away a lot of the language. It's still there to some extent, but there's much less nadsat in the film than there is in the book. Um, and what the film does is to try and find visual ways of representing what's happening in Alex's head. So, for example, there's the famous orgy scene where everything is speeded up, sort of Benny Hill speed, and other scenes are are kind of slowed down. The fight with the gang is all played through in slow motion. And there's the soundtrack all the way through, which is true to the spirit of the book. Um, But in other respects, some scenes are cut. For example, the second murder in the prison is missing Mm. from the film, and other scenes are added. For example, when Alex is being inducted into the prison, Kubrick writes new scenes um, to cover that. So it's not completely faithful to the novel. Well, and actually, the, the, the critic Christopher Ricks, at the time it came out, he, he had this interesting line where he said, the real problem with the film is not that it's violent, but that it's not violent enough, or specifically that it was selective in what violence it showed, so that... In some ways, it lets Alex off the hook in a way that the book doesn't. You know, as you say, that second murder isn't included, 
and the age of the teenage girls that he has the orgy with are raised from 10 to you know legal age and in a way by making him less repellent the kind of the point of the book is lost to some extent that we don't get the evil that we see in the first part of Burgess's novel which is then there's, there's less to punished. cure isn't there in the, mm. in the film in the book he's you know very much he, he's a suitable case for treatment shall we say much <laughs> yeah. more than in the film and how did Burgess's view of the adaptation change because initially he was quite a quite a fan of it wasn't he he had lots of different responses over time. When the, the film first came out, he reviewed it, and uh, he said various things about it. He said it's a completely faithful adaptation. He said it's a, a radical reworking of my book. So it's very difficult to hold both of those thoughts in your head at the same time. <laughs> yes. And he was pleased, I suppose, in the sense that he thought it would sell more copies of the book and people would talk about the, the ideas behind it. And Burgess had had no input into the making of the film, and when the press turned against the film, he felt exposed and he felt he was having to defend something that was Kubrick's cultural property and not his. Mm. Um, and then in 1973, Kubrick published a book called Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, a picture book um, containing the script of the film, which is largely taken from the novel. And Kubrick had only ever owned moving picture rights. He didn't have any book rights, so Burgess had to sort of litigate that book out of existence. Uh, though he reviewed it very rudely before um, it disappeared. And that's really the point, 1973, that he really turned against it, and he started giving interviews to newspapers and saying, oh, of course, Kubrick's this terrible pornographer. And then in the 80s, he wrote his own adaptation for the stage, a, a musical version of A Clockwork Orange. So he had various kinds of responses to this film that, having come out, it then threatened to eclipse his original novel, and I think he was quite unhappy about that. In that musical version, there's a moment near the end where a character comes on stage, and in the stage direction it says, bearded like Kubrick, <laughs> and uh, the, the other characters kick him off the stage. So that's maybe one way that he got his, uh, got his own back. This brought me to a sort of village I felt I'd vidded before, but was perhaps because all villages look the same, in the dark especially. Here were houses, and there was like a drinking mesto, and right at the end of the village there was a malenki cottage on its oddinoki, and I could vidy its name, shining white on the gate. Home, it said. So we've just stepped out of the car in the small Sussex village of Etchingham, which is where Burgess and Lynn moved in early spring 1960. He later wrote, We went to live in East Sussex, in a semi-detached house in the village of Etchingham. The house had apple garth inscribed on its gate, and this was just because there were gnarled trees which gave sour crabs. There was a shrubby front garden, and an extensive one at the back ran down to the stream called the Dodder. And they lived here for the next eight years and we're standing in front of Applegarth now it's still a you know, still here it's still a semi-detached house it's it's brick it's rather sort of grander than he seems to suggest it's got uh, three floors um, a rather nice looking front garden now not uh, too shrubby and uh, it still stands on the high street the main road running through the village where we're standing now and and Anthony Burgess 
once for the Hudson Review described the situation of the house. He said, we lived on the select side of the street. We have cesspools. On the other side, they have nothing. They defecate into buckets. <laughs> but by the, by, towards the end of his time here, I think they were putting in uh, more of a sewage system. Now, Jeff, let's just talk about the third part of Clockwork Orange, when he's had the Ludovico technique and he's been released from prison. And it's, it's a pretty bleak outlook, isn't it? He goes home. Yeah. And he's I, been kind of replaced, hasn't he? I quite like the third part of this book, mm. actually. It's, uh, I, I think it's like, yeah, he has been cured, definitely. He's, he hasn't got a violent impulse anymore. In fact, he feels sick and he actually vomits. Yes. Uh, whenever he, he has a desire or th- hears about violence. And he goes home and he expects to see his mum and his dad and, you know, they've just got a lodger in and yes. <laughs> they would never expected him to be released. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's kind of kicked out of his own home and he goes on it. The third part of the book is, is almost like a personal, solitary, wandering quest. Yes. Almost. It's, he tries to find a place to fit in and he finds it quite difficult. So he's been cast adrift, really. The true meaning of his life that gave him purpose when he was young, which was the violence and being the head of the gang, well, that's really what he was, that's now gone. And then what does a young man do at that point? Well, know? not just the violence, but the music as well, right? He goes to a record shop and, and remembers that he, he can't listen to any of the music that he loved. And, and so then it's really, it's so sort of tragic in a way. He, he goes to the library to research how to commit suicide. He can't see any other way out. And in the library, of course, he meets that same academic that he and the Droogs beat up at the very start of the book. And this academic and all these other starry dodderers start... Um, grabbing him with their trembly old rookers and they have this big kind of fist fight beating and he can't fight back because he can't you know it makes him feel sick and then and I think this is one of the most terrifying moments in the book is when the police come to break up this fight and there's two policemen he thinks I recognize those two backs yeah and it's Dim, his old droog, and Billy Boy, his old enemy, are now policemen. This, this third part is really about all of his past crimes are now going to be dealt out to him in various different ways, you know. He's, he can't escape the past, yeah. but he's now got to deal with it almost as a victim this time. For the, right. third, the third part, he's the victim, isn't he? Well, the third yeah. part of the book is quite programmatic in that he meets everyone yeah. he's wronged in part yeah. one. And I suppose that's what Burgess means when he talks about it as a sort of parable the coincidence of, of bumping into exactly the same people you know the ones who are still alive against whom he's committed crimes um, but it's it's interesting how that's sort of dramatized and you know it just gets worse and worse uh, as each victim or, or former friend or enemy yeah. is, is sort of re-encountered so these dim and billy boy put him in the back of a police car drive him out of town to the outskirts of a village not unlike etchingham and uh Burgess doesn't actually give us the violent scene. He just says, I will not go into what they did, but it was all like panting and thudding against this like background of whirring farm engines. And it's a really powerful sentence. Yeah, yeah. And they leave him there, and he kind of totters into the village and comes across a cottage with the name Home outside, and it's the same cottage of the author and his wife that he visited at the start of the book. So let's go and knock on the door of, uh, of another cottage, of Applegarth, and talk a little bit more about the end of the book inside. Hello, Hello. Hey, Nick. Hello. 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 
Hi, Henry. <laughs> Hello, Henry. Very nice to meet you. Thank right. you so much. We've got a very friendly Labrador here. So okay. Just sniff you all out. Okay, that's great. So we've just stepped into Applegarth, into a beautiful, very warm and welcoming interior. And I'm delighted to say that the current owners, Nick and Jeanette Storey, have very kindly allowed us in. Nick, Jeanette, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, very welcome. And I suppose my first question is, do you ever think about the fact that Burgess lived here? And if so, how does that feel to live in the house where he lived and worked? Yeah, we do, don't we? And we've been talking about getting a blue plaque put on the house for some time. Or some kind of plaque, yeah. 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 Just to recognise the fact, really, that he wrote Clockwork Orange here and etc. And recognise him as an author. Yeah, I was amazed when we were told that it had been his house because I remember reading it at school when I was 14. Mm. Uh, it, it really blew me away. And um, <laughs> the, the sort of some of the slang entered, you know, the, the vernacular of what my friends and I would use, just mucking about. And I was dead keen to see the film, obviously, because it was banned for so long. Well, Andrew, in your biography, you have wonderful descriptions of, of daily life here in, uh, in, the, in Applegarth. You have a moment where you describe a typical Burgess day in the 1960s, which was to, to wake up, put on some loud music on the record player downstairs, eat some breakfast, read the post, read the papers, and about 10 o'clock in the morning, sit down at the typewriter with a pint mug of strong tea and work for eight hours straight for the rest of a day. Quite extraordinary to think of him doing that in this space. Yeah, and he was also a piano player. So there was a piano in here um, and a dog lover. I'm very pleased to see that you you have an excellent dog, a black Labrador called Wilbur. So it's still a a sort of dog-friendly house. And we think he probably did his writing in what's now one of the bedrooms upstairs, which was his study, looking out over the the very long back garden. Yeah, lovely lovely view as well. Which he writes about. And there are some pictures of him working in there as well. Oh, wow. When we bought the place, it was occupied by a gentleman called Mr. Sweetman. Yes. And he had been, it was his wife who had been Burgess's cleaner, we understand, and they'd bought the property from him. Yeah, Joyce Sweetman, who came to own the house after the Burgesses, had, had done the cleaning for them for about eight years, I think, and got to know them quite well. Uh-huh. And uh, she said she would find bottles of gin um, tucked behind the sofa and all over the house, really, which belonged to uh, the first Mrs. Burgess, Luella. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got many of a gossip story from the pub that used to be down the road where mm. they regularly got kicked out and um, the, the humanities wife were fighting in the pub. So we used to hear all sorts of stories, but there was lithium and opium involved and all sorts of stuff. I don't know how true any of it is, but we, we got told that by some of the old residents of the village. He says in his autobiography that when they moved in, they built a pub in the attic. I don't know if uh, any possible. signs of that have survived. That's entirely what's possible. It was, yeah. it, it, it was completely barren and empty of anything when we moved in. And it, well, there were empty bottles up there, but we thought they might be from the sweeteners. didn't know if they dated back <laughs> it was to an the problem. Was well, it was painted, wasn't it? Do you remember the colour? No, was, I don't, know. It was actually orange. The whole attic was painted Oh, that's orange. right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> attic. Yeah. Exactly, it was really odd. So, and it was a lino flooring which my little dog had been habiting. Do you remember? It was, so it was very outrageous. Nice. So, the yeah. whole lot was ripped out and just the whole lot repainted and redone. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was very uncared for and unloved, the entire house. Was... Well, we'll go up in a second, perhaps, and, and have a look at that. But, Jeff, when Alex has been beaten by the police and left on the side of the village, he comes to this 
house label home. And who is it who takes him in? Well, it's the F. Alexander, the, mm. the stand-in for Burgess in the novel, who, you know, as, as we said before, this, this, this third part is a mirror, a mirror image of the first part in many ways. And coincidentally or not, he's now arrived at the home of one of his early victims, and uh, he's in for a shot. And the irony is that F. Alexander is initially incredibly kind. And it, there's a moment where Alex says, oh, my brothers, I could have wept at his kindness. He kind of gives him a hug. He brings him in. He gives him a bath. A because Alex wore meal. a mask. Exactly. In the first part. So F. Alexander doesn't recognise him. Exactly. But then he recognises him from his NADSAT language, isn't he? And his use of the word dim. Right. For a friend, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He Gradually, you see the sort of this mad light gleaming in F. Alexander's eyes and you realise that he's working out what's going on. Well, there's a moment where Alex, when he's had a rest, he goes and steps into the writer's study and, and looks for the writer's name on the spines of the books. And he finds a Clockwork Orange on the shelf and sees that he's called F. Alexander. And he says, good bog, I thought, he's another Alex. So let's head up to the study where Alex finds the book, or rather where Anthony Burgess wrote the book. Oh. As far as we know, it would have been this room. OK. It would have happened. Well, I'm guessing, because it's the larger of the two. Fantastic. So this is, this is our son Milo's bedroom. Yeah. And yeah, with the fireplace, that, that's right enough. Um... So Nick's just opening the blind. We're looking out, yes, on the long garden down to the river and beautiful fields beyond. It's, it's a gorgeous view. It's nice. Yeah. Very nice. So we've just stepped into a room. It's, uh, it's clearly a boy's bedroom with posters on the wall and computer in the corner. A nice collection of Lynx deodorants <laughs> on the... Uh, on, the the house reeks of it. It's outrageous. <laughs> I mean, standing in this room where we know Burgess finished A Clockwork Orange is quite remarkable um, not only because of the, the view and imagining him being here but also he writes about um, he would often work quite late at night if he'd not done his quota of words for that day and he used manual typewriters which were quite loud and he said the neighbours would bang on the wall to complain uh, if he was <laughs> typing too late and he would sort of bang back and carry on uh, so there's that sense that, that he was um, constantly at it from early in the morning until late at night and sometimes he would write through the night if he was on a deadline for a review or something. So there was so much activity going on, not just in this house, but in this room where we're now standing. It's amazing to have arrived here on our day's journey. You know, this is the room that's kind of haunted by his presence in a way. Yeah, it's it great. Is. I love it. It is. And, Andrew, what do you think is the significance of Burgess putting a writer into this novel who's writing a, a book called The Clockwork Orange? Well, I mean, it's important not to make too much of that because actually the book, within the book, it's called A Clockwork Orange. Uh, before uh, Alex destroys the manuscript, he reads out a bit of it. And it's not a novel. It's this terrible <laughs> political tract. And the writer in the book, I think, he's, he's a bit of a joke. He's a kind of political activist of a kind that Burgess didn't really trust. So I don't think it's a self-portrait. I, mm. I think he's playing with the idea that there's a book within the book, but it's not the book we're reading. So there's, there's a kind of distance between sure. the novel and, and the, the fictional, non-fiction political book. Sure. Burgess himself later said that, described Alex and F. Alexander as mirror images. And in a way, they're as bad as each other, aren't they? Because 
F. Alexander's first idea when he meets Alex is to use him for his political ends. This is continuing the idea of Alex is now is the victim of yes, you know, and in fact he gets used by two political bodies, isn't he? The the activist group and then the government. That's right. F. Alexander invites some of his friends round, and they all sort of look at him and say, "What a superb device he can be! You can be used, poor boy, a martyr to the cause of liberty." And Jeff, how do they use him in the end? Uh, I think they they see him as an example of the extremes to which the current government will go in the novel in terms of trying to control people. So I think they want to emphasise that. Exactly. Yeah. And they do that awful thing, don't they, where they lock him in a in an apartment and then play loud music through the wall so he's completely maddened and driven to throw himself out of the window and they hope this will be the kind of... They well, they can... hope that he will die, I think right. that's it. Yeah. yeah, but of course he doesn't. He doesn't, <laughs> he yeah. Doesn't. <laughs> and in fact, it completely rebounds on them and the, the sinister minister of the interior, or inferior, as Alex keeps saying, <laughs> it says to Alex, you have killed those horrible, boastful villains' chances of re-election. They will go and will go forever and ever. You have served liberty well. Yeah, it's so chilling the way that that word liberty is used by both sides of politics in this novel and and ultimately, Alex is a victim at the end. And except that this fall, this attempted suicide, reverses the effect of the Ludovico technique, doesn't it? In, in a way, it cures him of the cure that he's been given. So let's, let's head back out for one final stop in this episode. Nick, Jeanette, thank you so much for letting us in to see your house. It's a real privilege to see inside and see the room where A Clockwork Orange was written. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. But where I itty now, oh my brothers, is all on my oddy knocky, where you cannot go. Tomorrow is all like sweet flowers and the turning vonny earth and the stars and the old lunar up there and your old droog Alex all on his oddy knocky seeking like a mate and all that cow. Well, we've left Applegarth now, and I had been hoping we'd have this final conversation in the Dietchingham Arms, which was the habitual den for Burgess and Lynn when they were living at Applegarth. That, unfortunately, has been turned into housing in the 1990s. So we've moved a little way along the high street to Etchingham Station, which was Burgess's lifeline to London and to the rest of the country. Now, Andrew, how does A Clockwork Orange end? There are two endings to the book. There's the British one where Alex kind of grows up. He, um, he's 18 years old, he's left prison, he's shaken off the conditioning and he decides that he's going to sort of go straight, I suppose, um, in the sense that he, he's got another gang but he, he's, he's not interested in that anymore and he meets one of his former gang members who's now uh, settled down and married and and suddenly he has this kind of revelation that he wants to go beyond all the things he's done while he's young and wants to do something else and, and become a more sort of respectable member of society, perhaps. Uh, that's the British ending. And then when the novel was published in America in 1963, they left out that final chapter. And so Alex, at that point, he just ends with the words, I was cured all right, and we assume he's going to go back to where he started off, 
So there are two different endings depending on where the book is published. He said at one point later in his life that I've been plagued by the fact that it has really been two books, one American and the other for the rest of the world. But Jeff, what do you think about this ending? Because it's interesting that in Kubrick's adaptation, he, he absolutely omits that final chapter. And he said that was because he had the American edition and maybe that's the case. But interestingly, in Burgess's own screen adaptation, which he wrote in 1969, he also finishes before that final chapter. And there is something neat about ending where Alex starts, isn't there? Yeah, the, I mean, I've listened to the radio play and that definitely includes the final chapter and right. it does grow up in that one. I don't have a problem with the final chapter at all, the British version, because I think it's Burgess saying, well, actually, if you let people just live, they have their own controlling system, which happens when you reach a certain age. Mm. And that's a really simple idea, but in a book like that, it, you know, it kind of works for me. Mm. That he is, actually, he's just growing up, he's ready to move on, you know, which happens to kids, it happens to teenagers. Of course. Mm. Well, a final question to both of you. Having seen the places where Burgess was living as he wrote this book and discussed its various adaptations and, and the ways it's been interpreted since, what do you see as the lasting legacy of, of A Clockwork Orange? Well, for me, it's, it lies in that very small bunch of novels which are experimental and yet highly readable. <laughs> I put, you know, Ballard's Atrocity Exhibition in there, for instance. It's a small group because most experimental novels aren't that readable, but this is. You can whiz through it, yeah. and I think that's really cool. I think that the idea of the language is the most important thing. That's its lasting influence, and it has influenced people through the years. I like the idea that I would take away from it is, you know, a question that I ask is, can you have a novel with an unsympathetic character? Mm. And in today's age, that's not very fashionable. Back then it was, and I think it's really interesting to go back and look at how writers tackled that difficult subject mm -hmm. in those times, and that, for me, is in very interesting to read these days. I completely agree. And, and Andrew, someone who's immersed and is immersing themselves in Burgess's life and work, what do, what do you see as its lasting legacy. I'd agree with Jeff. I think the language is the, the key thing and the, the kind of experimentalism of the book. It, it's taking a whole load of risks uh, and some very bold things it's doing formally. Reading it again for this discussion, the thing that jumps out at me most is how far it's a book about sort of dreams and the unconscious and, and uh, you know, fantasies and altered states. And I'd slightly lost sight of that in thinking about the political meanings. It, it's completely Alex's story. And as Jeff says, I mean, he's, he's not somebody who you would kind of maybe invite home to tea or introduce to your mother. That kind of doesn't matter. There, there's a, an energy about that voice and that language. And I think that's the reason why we're still talking about it, you know, 60 years yeah. after it was published and, and why it's found this big reputation all over the world, really. Well, thank you both so much. It's been a real privilege exploring Burgess's Sussex today and exploring the places where he wrote A Clockwork Orange. Thank you very much for coming with us. Thank you. It's been really good fun. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Many thanks to Jeff Noon, to Andrew Biswell, to Christopher Hawtrey, to Nick and Jeanette Storey, to Penguin Audio for the clips of Tom Hollander reading from A Clockwork Orange, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. 
I'm Henry Elliott, the producer was Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this. In Burgess's own screen adaptation of A Clockwork Orange, in the final shot, he has Alex turn directly to the camera and ask, what's it going to be then, eh? Before running straight towards the viewer with his cutthroat razor poised to draw blood. I'll let Alex have the last word. I could vidy myself very clear, running and running on light, very light and mysterious nogas, carving the whole litso of the creaching world with my cutthroat britfa. And there was the slow movement and the lovely last singing movement still to come. I was cured all right. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.